Side Street Stories presents The Witness of Kitab Al-Azif Chapter 1 Inquiry and Summoning I sought out John because of what he'd posted online. Not because I hadn't heard from him in months. In fact, I was used to his disappearances. Or because of the title he'd given the track, which was evocative enough for the likes of me. Or because the music itself was disturbing and singular and touched some note of dread deep down in me. Rather, I started looking for him because of what he'd called the album. Incunabulum. I recognized the word which was often mentioned in the usual underground black magic circle jerk forums, and often in conjunction with certain medieval grimoires printed prior to the 1500s. But this was John, and if he's making compositions with that name, it's for real. Something of the old masters. The thing with John is, he used to teach band in a private school out in the burbs, had a wife and a house and the usual plans for domestic dissolution. But a chance encounter with an old occult book vendor in the city prompted him to leave his old life behind. These days, supported by a dwindling inheritance he'd been saving for retirement, he collected certain illicit books and spent his nights making strange ambient soundscapes on a computer rig he'd cobbled together from some spare parts. His wife was nowhere to be found, likely as abandoned as his past. Anyway, it must have been a year since we'd last seen each other, But in that time, we'd traded scores of emails and DMs, often just links and passwords we'd mined from unscrupulous sources, hacker tips, and routes to little pockets of internet esoterica, the stuff way down deep past the dark web, past all the contract killers and drug dealers and pedophile rings. There's this whole slippery world down there at the bottom, if you know where to look. But when I heard John's new piece, dubbed... Inquiry and Summoning, the first and only track so far posted for this new album, I knew he was on some new trip, likely something bleak and horrid. So of course I had to be there for it. In the brief blurb attached to the track, he mentioned that he'd photographed a few pages of the book itself, that he'd used these to mix the track provided, the text or the pages themselves serving as inspiration It wasn't clear. And it was then that I knew I had to find him, and I didn't know what I'd do when I did. Make him show me the copies and write a review for my readership, or snatch up the photos and flee, myself lost to the study of them. What did I owe him anyway, right? Or anyone, for that matter. He'd stopped corresponding with me by the end of the winter, and here it was already turning into a rainy, global, warm summer. 
Besides, my writing assignments had gone stale, my bank account was disastrously low, and all the other avenues of my life had closed up, with me in this kind of desperate funk of looking for meaning, I admit. So with no real prospects except this itch to find answers about John, I began my search. It took less than two weeks. A few phone calls to his friends and family led me on a chase through the city, out of it, and back again. Eventually, I learned that he'd taken a small room at the top of a crumbling tenement somewhere on the south side. One of those slum towers always teetering on the edge of collapse, but somehow never quite doing it. You already know the kind of neighborhood I found him in, the kind he felt drawn to in this new life of his. Here, the snarled rat kings hunt flooded streets in the rain, and the dumpsters emit a particularly meaty stench in dry heat, and the hookers proudly display their track marks in a kind of lurid foreplay as they lean into car windows, leering at drivers. All the lamps drop sickly yellow cones on places like this. All the drugged and defeated huddle inside damp cardboard hovels, under bridges, over ledges. A leg twitches out from a dark stoop, a scabby hand reaches for change and tugs at your coat, and you walk on, forcing a scowl. And by the time I rounded the corner, it must have been just after midday, but the street itself seemed steeped in twilight, or as if the sky had given up and pooled into an endless gray nothing overhead, draped like rotten linen over the buildings, the air itself sour and soggy and suffocating. Like I said, you know this place. And that day, when I looked up and spotted the single electric glow of his window hovering there far above me, a diseased blue eye and a flat black facade, I knew I'd found his home. It was the perfect atmosphere for our reunion, private and indifferent and cold, the kind of setting John would appreciate, even contrive, if he still gave thought to stage setting. Another thing about John, a paradoxical thing maybe, is that his devotion to the occult is only matched by his compulsion for theatrics and timing. The rain melted into a fine drizzle, and a slow fog loped down the street toward me. Above it all, black storm clouds had come through and passed on and were now coming back in again, a vortex spiraling overhead like it wanted something but couldn't decide what. Wind slapped damp newspaper around my shoes, and I buzzed the intercom. The speaker came on, all static but no voice, and I said, It's me. And he buzzed me through. I found the cipher manuscript in an old New England library, he said as I entered. Tucked away in a corner behind a few other dusty manuscripts and tomes. I recognized the words immediately, and at first I couldn't tell if he'd memorized the blurb he'd written for that first track on his Bandcamp page, or if this was all he had left in him, his mind broken and failing, fading out, recycling memories. Lately I've been wondering if this was some kind of mental trap he'd found himself in back then an accidental spell of his own making, or a contamination of that first book itself. I've read that already, I said. Behind his black frame glasses, his eyes resembled pennies coated in vertigris, the room lit by nothing but a series of low-watt table lamps placed all around the floor. 
Shadows hung over our heads, creating the impression that the ceiling vaulted somewhere far above us. It was cold and tomb-like, and deliberately made to be this way, for effect. And he did seem trapped there, then, this dark afternoon, a prisoner sitting on a duct-tape drum stool and surrounded by his workstation, a collection of laptops, keyboards, keypads, monitors, and random exotic gadgetry, cords everywhere. Two disused guitars and a single, battered bass hung like ancient weapons on the wall behind him. A nearby drum kit crowded him in. I admired these instruments that fit him like some kind of technopompic cocoon, and I wondered what a younger John was like, the one with a wife and career and 401k. After a pause, disinterested in my interruption, he continued, It bore an imprint of a glyph on the cover. Yes? I said, impatient. He nodded, but he was stuck on the script, mired in it. But its contents intrigued me, so, in contradiction to the library's rules, I snuck some photographs of the first few pages. He was going for spectacle, sure, but there was something real just under the skin of performance. All right, sure. Whatever, man. I sighed and lifted a stack of grimy books from an old red club chair positioned across from him, apparently this the only other seat he owned. The floorboards bent as I sat, towers of books tilting toward me. His room was filled with the desiccated things, stacked instead of stored on shelves, each pile like some replica of the building he inhabited. I knew this, too, about John. While he had an obsession with the occult and a flair for spectacle, he also possessed a preference for the tactile, something I found ironic in a musician who programmed sounds into a machine and shared them over the ether. He studied me, taking it all in, waiting for my reaction. How far would I indulge him? I showed nothing, scratched at the stubble on my cheek, unable to decide what was real and what was fiction, and unsure if I cared. I produced a lighter and one-hitter from my blazer and held them out, the paraphernalia forming a V that danced in my fingers. Do you mind? I said. Interested? He shook his head, not minding, not wanting. I could hear the rain hushing through an open window on his right, where lightning flashed against the clouds out beyond the black silhouette of a cityscape. A cold breeze wafted through and prickled the sweat on my forehead. It was going to be a long night, and I wanted to slow it down and savor it, so I lit up, inhaled, and gestured continue, deep breathing through patience. Most days I meditated, self-medicated, or both, which helped dealing with others. He continued his recitation, nearly smiling with this look of mania, hope, joy. After spending several days delving into their secrets, I sat down and wrote this electronic piece. And here he reached behind him blindly, pressed a button on a keyboard, and the track began to play, low and sibilant from the corners of the room. I could barely see the speakers, black obelisks on thin necks poised perfectly, if subtly, so that you might assume the sound was coming from the room itself. Which vaguely describes my inquiry into those dire marks, and the attendant summoning of a great evil that commenced. I smoked and studied the man. His hair was messy and unwashed, with tufts of black curls that swayed when he nodded at the monitor closest to him. And when he righted his glasses, adjusting his perception to focus on the task at hand, you couldn't tell he was 50 years old just then, 
Rather, he looked more like a kid playing with his new chemistry set, a prodigy in the making. I puffed too much too quickly, the air fogging between us, the music lifting around us. Except, I soon realized that this wasn't the track he'd posted online, not quite, but something very similar, a finer magic. And soon a scene unfolded on the haze between us, a vision that played across the screen of smoke I'd exhaled, an experience of colors and tones that imbued the air itself with cinematics. I remember thinking very distinctly, this is a hallucination, it has to be. Or perhaps, somehow, it was just a waking dream. At first, there is only the slinky sachet of people moving, hips and trills, a hush of crowds with no decipherable voices but which soon emit low ululations and cries, all of them in clusters shifting through a city so thoroughly unlike our own yet somehow familiar. And then the streets wake up, too, and a brightness blossoms as pinpoints of stars pierce an unfamiliar firmament, a deep cranberry red sky, the constellations all wrong and unknowable. And now a molten silver sun rises, parallel with a horned black moon, and by a sickly orange light there appears what must be all the buildings forming a complex series of crowded narrow lanes and deep, stark shadows. The design of this nameless city complex and shaped into strange patterns, burrows like ancient symbols, fractal avenues of meaning. Soon you can decipher great columns of ebony and granite rising from misshapen stumps of stone and wood, the structures seemingly not carved or built but belched up from the ground itself and apparently consisting of both mineral and organic matter. And now, coming down a main thoroughfare and parting its throngs, a purple-hooded and red-robed procession, a cluster of larger figures, spindly and gray-skinned and arrayed in tatters, playing a weird amalgamation of harps and lyres and flutes and instruments with no names. What must have been a priest or sorcerer leads them, the supreme character arrayed in a stark yellow gown, barking and lunging at the crowds as it passes, either clearing the way or announcing the triumphant arrival of something important. Soon its arms lift high, and then rising up from below them comes a second set of arms, then a third, this spider-limbed figure bellowing a gospel and inciting awe and horror as the crowds quiet and shudder in fearful reverence. And so the parade trails on. And from a chain around its neck, this elder raises a book high over its head with its first set of hands, and it screeches suddenly, a herald with a mouth like a broken horn. Something is coming. This cry becomes a proclamation, sudden and shocking, like a new presence in a dark room. And then the congregants that surround him mumble at intervals, some memorized call and response chant, all of them bleeding an insectile consonant noise and the surrounding celebrants bow and begin crawling on the ground, arms raised, heads lowered, while the sky flashes overhead, a rapid cycle of lights and shadows playing across the clouds. Is it the passage of days and nights? Is this how the planet moves through space? And now a guttural growl booms high above the city, as if the sun and moon themselves are answering and cowering. Something is coming, 
and it drowns out all other sound, all sense, the intonation catastrophic to the ears. The watchful crowds quiver along the roads and drop even lower in worshipful supplication, scrabbling back against the walls, then indoors, and suddenly it strikes you for some reason that these buildings are all shrines, its inhabitants a priest caste, this entire metropolis a single sprawling temple to some deity that is soon to arrive. And now the labyrinthine roads lay bare, cleared of all who had gathered for the parade, this now the path of a god. And so the god comes. It sounds like wings at first, a furious flapping of millions of wings descending from a point high in the stratosphere, but tinged with mechanical notes resonant of construction. A vast thing of flickering gray beams of light eclipsing now the sun, now the pointed moon, a celestial being both monster and machine, something humming and whining and retching and whirring, its voice unlike anything you could have imagined, a grumble of discontent and waking, yawning, opening its mouth, groaning until... The track faded away, pulling me back to John's little hole of an apartment. I was still sitting in the club chair, tin cigarette in my hand, apparently absently refilled several times in the weed, all gone. We sat in silence, neither of us speaking or moving. Even the rain seemed diminished, but then it too came back, the storm wending in again. My body felt heavy and useless, my limbs stiff and sore. There was a gel of saliva on my lips, a crust flecking the corner of my eyes, and my voice croaked as if I'd been silent for days. Maybe I had. What was that? I hissed. John's voice came through, too, a creaking sound. Thankfully, the spell, or whatever it was my music did to open some sort of gate, was incomplete, and the horrid thing collapsed back into its nether dimension. I was both irked and comforted that he'd managed to stick to his carefully wrought script, but he continued. It's hard to even believe, but it truly happened. I can only imagine with great hesitation what might come from an investigation into the original book in its entirety. I understood only then what he was up to. The text he'd just recited from his webpage where he'd posted that sonic horror... It was his elevator pitch, a bit of salesmanship on his part. This was him putting out a call, not unlike the spider-limbed priest in the vision, part invocation, part warning. I just happened to be the first to answer, the first to materialize at his door. The song and the text formed the jaws of a Venus flytrap, and I was the curious fly, enticed and doomed. This is just a recording, he said his soliloquy over, losing eye contact. A bad copy of the original. It's just, I don't know, incomplete. It gives you a peek into that place. And what I posted online was a copy of this copy, harmless as far as I can tell, intended for public consumption. Well, not entirely harmless. It drew you here after all. He smiled broadly, his eyes roaming the floor. He knew he had me. So show me, I said. Play it. Play me through the opening of that gate. Let's go. Oh, oh, I can do better than that, he said, and spun around on his throne, his back to me for a moment as he rummaged among score sheets and wads of paper and fast food wrappers. 
He unearthed the enlarged, full-color photographs and handed them to me. At a glance, the pictures were confusing, both repulsive and compelling, the pages yellowed and marred, but somehow bearing still clear splashes of circular patterns and an unrecognizable language and sloping blue and red script that sometimes melted into an artistic design along the margins. There was a sheen to the ink that I'd never seen before, particularly in writing this old. I think, he said as if reading my thoughts, that this book was placed in that library for me to find. And all I've been waiting for is a companion, a witness to what I am about to do. A witness? You want someone to document this? Your process? The opening of that gate? He nodded. But first, I have to get that book. After I have it, we can travel. We can go there. So began the journey with my friend John with myself as the sole assistant to his corruption and his transformation. This has been a production of Side Street Stories. It is engineered and produced in Grummis Studios. Story by Drummis. Writing by Aaron Efimenko. Music and sound production by Drummis. The Witness is played by Aaron Efimenko. John is played by Drummis. you have just listened to is based on a true story. Any similarity to events present, past, or future is purely non-coincidental. The persons, places, and things depicted in the podcast are dangerously real. Do not read from the book. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Side Street Stories, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.